This Parsha podcast is dedicated in honor of a new baby, Ezra Gershon, the newly born son of our dear friends Albert and Alexandra Budnitsky. May young Ezra grow and flourish and bring joy and pride to his family, to his community, to the Jewish people, and of course, to his creator. What a happy and joyous day. We're up to the final installment of the Book of Numbers. You are warned that this is the longest possible Torah reading in the diaspora we read this week. Two parshios, Matos and Mase, a total of 244 verses. You have to have some extra stamina in shul this week. But finally, after several months, we are going to be fully synchronized with our brethren in Israel, we're going to have a double parsha and finally catch up to them. This is this year's soul double parsha. And what a joy. What a delight. What a privilege to study Torah together on the parsha podcast. We are, of course, on the doorstep of the sad period of the Jewish calendar. Tomorrow, Thursday night, but really Friday, is going to be Rosh Chodesh Av, the beginning of the month of Av, the month that all the terrible tragedies befell our people. And the Talmud tells us that when the month of Av begins, we minimize joy. But that's tomorrow. That's Friday. Now we are still in maximum joy mode. And for us, of course, it's really easy to be joyous because we have the Parsha podcast. And we have an amazing and wonderful set of parashios, not just one, two matos and mase to study together. Now, these parashios are really sprawling. It starts off with the laws of vows and oaths, making a vow and how you annul the vow. Of course, we take words very seriously. In the Jewish calendar, we annul our vows on Erev Rosh Hashanah, the day before Rosh Hashanah, we take off the Yom Kippur with Kol Nidre, which is a communal annulment of vows. And it's kind of an amazing thing. If you make a vow, you're essentially creating another mitzvah, 614, not just the 613 that God gives us. If you say, I'm making a vow to not eat this particular food, now there is an additional mitzvah that is the power, that's the superpower that we have with a vow, but we have to heed our words. If you make a vow, we don't make a vow. We try to avoid that. But if you do, you got to keep your words. And the Torah tells us in our parsha the laws of the vows, the laws of the oaths, and how they get annulled. And then it transitions to the war that we were told about last week, but is finally going to be implemented this week, the war with Midian. We have the conscription of the warriors, a thousand warriors per tribe. The Midrash tells us that there were an additional 2,000 soldiers per tribe, a thousand for supplies, for provisions, quartermasters. Evidently, the Jews knew millennia ago that materiel and supply lines, they help to win wars. Plus, there was an additional thousand people, thousand warriors per tribe, not to fight on the physical battleground, 
but to fight on the spiritual battle and to pray. And this war is totally flawless, a complete victory with no casualties. They even settle a score with Bilam, they kill Bilam and the five teens of Midian despite Bilam's sorcery. But the war is incomplete. Moshe criticizes the nation for the incomplete victory. You left the women alive. They were the instigators. And then after that is fixed, we have the laws of kashering vessels. They plundered the booty, the spoils of war from Midian. And they have all kinds of pots and pans and grills that all kinds of non-kosher food was cooked in. How do you render that kosher? How do you remove the non-kosher residue? We have the laws of how to purge vessels from their non-kosher elements in our parsha. We have the division of the spoils from the war, very detailed accounting of all the booty, of what was taken, what was plundered in the war, and how it was divided. And then we read about the tribes who wanted to settle on the east bank of the Jordan and the conditions imposed by Moshe for this arrangement. That's Parshas Matos. And Parshas Masa begins with the list of encampments. We're now at the end of the 40-year sojourn throughout the wilderness. And the Jewish people spent this whole time moving from place to place. But the Torah does not tell us all the places that the Jewish people encamped at until now. We have a list of 42 different places where they stopped. We have the instruction to conquer the land and to vacate the indigenous population. We have the layout of the boundaries of biblical Israel. We have the appointment of tribal leaders, of tribal representatives. Every tribe should have representatives when they do the division of the land, when they apportion the land, every tribe will be represented. We have the cities of the Levites. The Levites don't get a portion of the land. Rather, they have cities, 48 cities, scattered, distributed throughout the land. And then we have the cities of refuge for the accidental, unintentional murderers. And finally, we have the resolution of the episode of the daughters of Tzlavchad. And they are told that they could marry whomever they want, provided they are from the tribe of Manasseh, so that when the land is initially apportioned to every tribe, there isn't an exclave of another tribe within the boundaries of the tribe of Manasseh. That is the subjects, or the main subjects, of our double parsha. Again, it's the only double parsha this year. It's a leap year. We got to use up almost all the parshios one at a time, one per week. All kinds of interesting subjects and storylines and narratives to dig into. But I want to focus on one particular narrative of our parsha. It actually appears a few times in the Torah. And that is the two, or really the two and a half tribes that chose to settle on the east bank of the Jordan. There were several wars that were waged on the east bank of the Jordan. Sichon owed the war with the Midianites. And there is vast territories that the nation has conquered. And there are two and a half tribes, the tribes of Ruvain, Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. And they want to permanently settle on the east bank of the Jordan. And there's a very long dialogue 
It's all of chapter 32. It's 42 verses to be precise. When this group of two and a half tribes negotiate the terms of this arrangement with Moshe. And this is a very long, protracted negotiation back and forth. And for context, we have entire books of Talmud that young yeshiva students spend a year, maybe even more, pouring over that have fewer verses in the Torah. And the Torah spends so much, all of chapter 32 in our parsha to tell us about the back and forth, what they suggested, what was the proposal, what were Moshe's objections. They counter-proposaled and Moshe again objected to various components of the plan until ultimately it was agreed upon. And in fact, their proposal, at least in the big picture, was accepted. If the Torah spends so much time telling us about these negotiations and what ultimately was agreed upon with these two and a half tribes who wanted to settle on the east bank of the Jordan, there are obviously abundant lessons and insights for us. So we have these two tribes, the tribes of Gad and Ruvain, and ultimately half of the tribe of Menashe join as well, and they wanted to settle on the east bank. They had abundant flock, And they wanted land for pasture. They wanted land to graze, to settle over here, to accommodate their vast flock. It seems like a pretty straightforward proposal. After all, we have all this land. What are we going to do with it anyhow? And that will vacate even more land for the other tribes who want to cross over the Jordan. It seems like it's a great idea. But the Torah gives it expansive treatment. And the back and forth is quite lengthy. And that's what I want to study today in this Parsha podcast. And I'll tell you, I am recording this from Canada. And long time listeners know the kinds of problems that I have when I record from other places not in the normal studio, the gleaming studio, the Torch Center. I'm in Canada, and we don't really have a Torch Center with us, and there's really not a quiet place that I can find. But last year, I discovered one of the shuls over here. It's a small shul built in the 40s. It looks like a giant cedar closet. And I snuck in here to record... And now it's it's nighttime, it's dark, it's a little creepy outside. And I'm in this empty room, and we're recording. And I'm really excited to be here with you. So what happens over here with this back and forth, and what can we learn? So chapter 32 tells us that the tribe of Reuben and Gad, they had abundant flock. The commentaries offer a bevy of reasons why Reuben and Gad specifically had so much more flock than the rest of the tribes. But they had a lot of flock. And they were situated in prime grazing pasture. And they wanted to remain there. And they come to Moshe. And they come to Elazar, the high priest, the son of Aaron. And they come to the heads of the tribes. And they make their pitch. Look around. There is so much abundant grazing pasture over here. We have a lot of flock. We want to settle down over here. Give us this land. 
Give us this as our heritage, as our ancestral lands, and we will forego, we will forfeit the lands that we would have had on the other side of the Jordan. That's their pitch. Four verses. Verses two through five. And Moshe responds with biting criticism. He starts off with indignation. Your brothers are going to cross over the Jordan and they're going to go to war against 31 kings and seven nations. And you're going to stay over here. You're going to abandon your brothers. They're going to go to war. They're going to risk their lives. And you're going to stay here in peace. And then he continues in verse 7. Why are you weakening the resolve of the Jewish people? And then in verse 8, he tells them, well, there's this precedent for this. And he reminds them of the episode of the spies. A couple of weeks ago, we read Parsha Shlach. Moshe sent spies to go scout out the land. And they were terrified of what they saw. And they came back with a damning report about the land. And everyone bewailed and everyone was so sad and terrified. They struck fear into the hearts of their brethren. And as a result of that, the nation was condemned to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And everyone who was part of that generation is going to pass and only their descendants are going to enter the land. Moshe tells them, you are just like the spies. You also are scared of crossing over the Jordan. And you're also going to weaken the resolve of the rest of your brethren. Haven't you learned your lesson? Haven't you taken the lesson of the spies? We've spent 40 years in the wilderness because of what they did. Why have you not learned from their mistakes? Why are you repeating the mistakes of the spies? And then in verse 16, the tribes of Reuven and Gad make a counter-proposal. We're not going to stay here. We will join our brethren in the war. We're not going to be fearful. We're not going to abandon our brethren. Let's build over here facilities for our flock and cities for our children. We're not going to stay here while our brethren go to war. We will join them in the war. Now Rashi notes, we'll get to this in a bit, that in their counter-proposal of verse 16, they misprioritized. They first mentioned the shelters for their flock and only then the housing for their children. Of course, we love our animals and we're instructed to take care of our animals. But of course, children come first. But they heed Moshe's objection. They they listen. They're moved by what Moshe said. We're going to arm ourselves. We're going to cross over this Jordan. And we're not going to come back to our homeland. We're not going to abandon the rest of our brethren until the war on the other side of the Jordan has concluded. And only then will we come back to rejoin our families on the east bank of the Jordan. Now, in verse 20, Moshe responds to their proposal. 
And he says, okay. If you do that, if you arm yourself and you go join the nation in this war before God, and you cross over the Jordan, and you make sure that everyone else is settled before you leave, after you conquer the land, you have fulfilled your obligation. You have executed your responsibility and you'll go back to the side of the Jordan and rejoin your families. But if not, you are sinning against God. So indeed, Moshe tells him, build cities for your children, build infrastructure for your flock. And Rashi points out that when Moshe restates their plan, he does it with the correct priority this time, first for your children and then for your flock. And then in verse 25, they accede and they say, we'll do like you are instructing us. We're going to leave our women and our children and our animals and our flock over here. And we're going to arm ourselves and we're going to join the war, the war of God as you spoke. And then verse 28, Moshe gets Joshua and Elazar involved. Of course, Joshua is going to lead the nation across the Jordan. He's going to replace Moshe. He's going to be Moshe's successor. And Moshe wants to make sure that the leaders of the people are privy to this agreement. And again, in verse 31, the Gadites and the Reubenites again confirm the terms of the agreement. And then from verse 33 through verse 42, this plan is implemented. They build their cities and they establish the infrastructure. And indeed, they're going to cross over the Jordan shoulder to shoulder with the rest of their brethren. And not only are they going to stay in the lands on the West Bank of the Jordan in Israel, Canaan proper for the war, they're going to stay there for the division. They're going to be there for 14 years until eventually in the end of the book of Joshua, they're going to retrace their steps, cross over the Jordan in the opposite direction, heading east, and rejoin their families. This is a very long and detailed negotiation back and forth. Their initial proposal, Moshe's objections, their counterproposal, and then we have Hirashi filling us in on the subtext of the nuances of the negotiations. It seems excessively wordy. At a minimum, if we have such a lengthy description of what happened, there must be some valuable lessons for us. So let's dig in and let's see what we find. So let's ask some questions as we like to do to help open up this subject. So let's throw out the following question. I don't have an answer to it. Maybe you do. Who would have occupied the lands on the East Bank of the Jordan if not for this plan of Gad and Ruvain when they offered to settle it? What was the plan otherwise? In the counterfactual world that everyone wants across of the Jordan, what happens on the East Bank of the Jordan in the lands that they are currently occupying and have won by defeating those kingdoms? That's unclear. But putting that aside, Moshe accuses them initially of behaving in the ways of the spies who went to scout out the land 40 years prior. 
and he rehashes the whole episode and its consequences, and he accuses them of not taking the lesson of the debacle of the spies to heart. He's comparing their proposal to what the spies did. But it doesn't seem to be a really fair comparison. The spies, they rejected the authority of Moshe. They sought to return to Egypt. Let us appoint a head and return to Egypt. The spies wanted no one to enter the land. These bunch of tribes didn't reject Moshe, didn't seek to return to Egypt, didn't impose upon the rest of the people. How could Moshe compare their request, their proposal, to what the spies did? Now, it's also interesting that Moshe involves Joshua and Elazar. Why was it necessary to have them present to hear the terms of this agreement? But more broadly, what are we to make of this whole dialogue? What are the lessons in this whole back and forth? So I want to suggest an approach. I think that there's something very special happening in the story. We have 12 tribes. There are 12 tribes plus the Levites, and they are operating together. They all left Egypt together, and they were all at Sinai together. Of course, they maintained their tribal affiliation, but they're in one big camp, and they're all in the leadership of Moshe. And for 40 years, for better or for worse, with ups and downs, of course, they've stuck together. And now we have a group of people, two tribes, two and a half tribes, who want to blaze their own path. They don't want to go with everyone else. They don't want to go with the flow. They don't want to follow what everyone else is doing. They're proposing to do something novel, to chart their own path, to make a change of plans, to do something different, to veer off the path of the mainstream. They're going to try something new. They're going to be different. They're going to be contrarians. Perhaps. Chapter 32. This whole long episode of this back and forth negotiations between Moshe and these tribes, perhaps it can serve as a playbook for identifying the perils of being a maverick, of being a contrarian, of trying to do something different. They are dreaming of an idea, a novel idea, not one proposed by God or by Moshe. These are the tribes coming up with something different. And in the back and forth, a dialogue with them and Moshe, we learn how to do something novel, different, contrarian, how to do it properly. Being different than everyone else, choosing a different path can be immensely powerful. To be, of course, gratifying because you're not just following what everyone else does, but it can also unlock all kinds of opportunities that are inaccessible otherwise. But you have to do it right. You have to do it for the right reasons. You have to not do it for the wrong reasons. 
You have to make sure that you're doing it properly. The tribes of Ruvain and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh, they were special. They were different. They were go-getters. They took initiative. They didn't simply let life happen to them. They weren't passive. They sought to maximize their opportunities. They wanted to go for it. They were mavericks, contrarians. When everyone zigs or zagged, zigged, they zagged, they zugged. They were different. And of course, that's very laudable. That's very admirable. It's commendable. But Moshe was able to see the blind spots in their plan, the flaws, the gaps in their thinking. And it's almost endemic to grand revolutionary plans. You're almost invariably going to have mistakes. When someone's singularly motivated, they're different in this way, they're independent, they're looking for something different, something special, they're likely to overlook pitfalls and likely to make mistakes. And in his assessment of their plan, Moshe's highlighting all the flaws in their plan. So perhaps, if this is true, perhaps this whole dialogue could be very illuminating for us because it could serve as a roadmap for mavericks, a guide for contrarians. If you want to do something different, how to make sure that you're not missing something obvious, you're not making a gross blunder. Moshe starts off with a retort. Your brothers are going to war and you're going to stay over here? You're focused on yourself. You're selfish. You hear about your flock, your possessions, your family. That comes secondarily. But what about the rest of the people? What about your brethren? What about the people who don't have a home yet? Who aren't settled? They're still traveling. They've been traveling for 40 years, just like you are. You want to settle down, be comfortable, be cozy, be home, be secure. You have your homestead. All of your enemies are vanquished. And they still need to go to war? And you're going to sit here in peace, in security, in stability? Flaw number one in their plan is that they went off the beaten track. They wanted to blaze for themselves their own path. But maybe they did it to choose the easier path, to avoid the hard work. Don't become a maverick to escape the trenches. Your path to greatness cannot be the path of least resistance, of avoidance of hard work, and worse, leaving that for others. Let other people do the dirty work, do the heavy lifting. You won't become your most. You won't develop yourself to the maximum of your potential by taking the easy path and avoiding the hard path. Moreover, it is supremely improper 
to allow your brothers to have a lifting while you're kicking your feet up and you're tending to your needs and your flock are taken care of and your children and your wives and you have nary a concern in the world. You want to be different. You want to be a maverick. You want to be a contrarian. You want to choose your own path. That's great. But not at the expense of avoiding the hard work and dodging the hard work and shifting all of that to others to do, abandoning your brothers to go into war without you. And Moshe invokes the sin of the spies. Your behavior, he tells them, it smacks of the same stench as the sin of the spies. They too were scared of the unknown. They were fearful. They wanted the security of the status quo. They preferred to go back to Egypt because that is the devil that they knew. Perhaps they view themselves as, oh, we're just risk-averse. We're circumspect. But the truth is, they were cowards. Maybe, just maybe, Moshe tells the people of Gad and Reuben, that is what is at play over here too. Maybe your proposal to avoid the crossing of the Jordan is somehow akin to the sin of the spies. The spies wanted to go back to Egypt. They were fearful of change, of conflict. They didn't believe in themselves. They had low self-esteem. We were like grasshoppers, they said. But not only did they not believe in themselves, they didn't believe in God. Maybe that is what is motivating you too. Maybe you're also scared. You're also fearful. You're also too comfortable in your current state. Maybe it's better for you to cross over the Jordan, but you're just too terrified to take that leap. Are you being a contrarian and telling yourself you're seeking more when really you're settling for less? Now, the Reubenites and the Gadites, they absorbed this criticism and they amended their proposal. We will build infrastructure for our sheep and cities for our children and we're going to join the nation, we will brave it, we will face our demons, we will cross over the Jordan, and we're going to rely on God. Moshe, thank you for showing us those pitfalls. We're going to avoid them. All those pitfalls that you enumerated, we're going to take what you said to heart. But they still got it a little bit wrong. In their view... In their proposal, they placed their flock before their children. Their priorities were out of whack, were a bit off. If you're going to do something different, you can become so focused on what's motivating you that you forget the obvious. You forget to properly assign value to other things. The thing that's motivating you begins to accrue so much of your focus, so much of your attention, that things that are even more important than that fall by the wayside. You have a lot of flock. We need grazing area. We need pasture. If you become so obsessed with pasture, 
that can eclipse the other priorities in life. Things that everyone agrees are objectively more important, such as your children. If you make something a priority, you're going to make it something you're going to focus on. It may ascend to the forefront of your mind and it may crowd out and overtake other things that you know are truly more important. Moshe is gently refocusing them. He tells them, no, you'll build cities for your children and afterwards, subsequently, less important than that is grazing areas, pens, barns for your flock. Now the commentaries note that Moshe chides them about something else. If you look at the first two proposals from the tribes of Gad and Reuben, they completely omit something very, very important. Not just something that's important, they omit the only important thing, they omit any mention of God. They talk about the pasture and the flock and the land and the heritage and not crossing over the Jordan. God is not part of their plan. And then when Moshe rebukes them, castigates them, chastises them, they make a counterproposal and they say, we will join and we won't be fearful and we won't abandon our brethren. And again, they make no mention of God. They talk about pens for their flock and cities for their families and arming themselves for war and making sure that their brethren are settled and returning to their homes and not permanently settling in their homes on the East Bank of the Jordan before everyone else is settled on the West Bank. But again, God is not present in their proposal. And if you look at verses 20 through 24, in every single verse, Moshe reminds them about God. And Moshe said to them, if you do this thing and you arm yourself before God to war and you join all your soldiers before God until the enemies are beaten and you conquer the land before God, afterwards you return and you will be clean from your obligation to God and to the Israelites And then you will have this land as an inheritance, as your ancestral homeland, Lifne Hashem, before God. And if you don't do this, you will be sinning to God. Repeatedly, Moshe is reminding them, you missed the central component of any plan. You forgot about God. And when they respond, this is in verse 25, They acknowledge, we're going to do it like you said. And they specifically mention verse 27 and and verse 32. We're going to cross over, go to war before God. We're going to cross the Jordan to the land of Canaan before God. Moshe is reminding them about another flaw with any grand vision. You could have grand plans 
They're well-planned, well-thought-out, well-reasoned. But a believer knows that things only succeed. They only work if God wants them to succeed. Otherwise, it's futile. That's, of course, why we are trained to always include God in our plans. Even young children are told, say, Be'ezras Hashem, with the help of the Almighty, Emirat Hashem, if God wants, if God wants, like we, we say in English, please God, if the Almighty helps, we're acknowledging the Almighty's dominion. And if we have a plan, we want something, we're lobbying to get him on board. Initially, they had grand plans. But their plans did not include any overt mention of God. And Moshe again is gently reminding them of this critical component of any plan, and they accept his nudging. This, of course, is another pitfall when someone wants to be a contrarian and do something different. And of course, it can be argued, even if you're not doing something different, you're doing what everyone else is doing. This could be a big omission, something that people forget about. You could get so consumed in your plan and in all its minute details, you could forget that ultimately it is God who determines the success and or failure of any venture. Now, before the agreement is finally sealed, Moshe brings in the two leaders of the nation at the time of the crossing, Joshua and Elazar. This, perhaps, is because there's another mistake that people can make when they choose to depart the beaten path. Sometimes people want to do something different simply because they are recalcitrant. They are malcontents who are resistant to authority. They're anti-establishment. Maybe the reason why these tribes wanted to settle on the east bank of the Jordan is because they want to be really far from the establishment. They don't want to be subjugated to the leaders of the people. Perhaps they were people who were resistant to the authority of the leaders of our people. Thus, to ensure that this is not an attempt to shape themselves free of the leadership, Moshe rehashed their plan in front of Joshua and in front of Elazar to make it clear to all that they're still part of the people. They're still part of this union. They're still subject to the leadership of Joshua and Elazar, notwithstanding their geographical distance, the fact that the Jordan River is separating them from the main body of the people. With all of Moshe's concerns addressed, this deal, this grand bargain is agreed upon, and indeed, the tribes of Ruvain and Gad and half of Manasseh settle ultimately on the east bank of the Jordan. I think when we read this verbose description of the negotiation of the two and a half tribes who wanted to settle on the Trans-Jordan, we discover a checklist. Checklist for contrarians, for dreamers, for visionaries, for mavericks. If you want to venture off the beaten path, 
If you want to do something a bit different, perhaps you have a good reason to do that. You want to do something unique. You want to chart your own path. You want to buck the trends of the masses. You're making a decision to do something different. And of course, that greatly expands the potential of what you can do and what you can become. But you have to do it right. You got to do it for the right reasons and in the proper fashion. It cannot be that you are abandoning your brothers, leaving them to do the dirty work. You can't choose a different path if there is going to be collateral damage to others. You can't char your own path if it will harm others, if it's going to weaken the resolve of others. Don't trample upon others to blaze your own path. Young dynamos, don't be selfish. And also make sure they do it for the right reasons. Make sure it's not due to fear of something greater. Don't choose the easier path because it's easier. Don't choose the mediocre path. Don't avoid ascending Everest because you already did so much climbing. Do not subsist with minor success. Believe true greatness on the table. If you're going to choose to do something different, you must make certain that you don't lose sight of other things. Don't warp your priorities. In your pursuit of expanding your empire, don't forget about your children. Don't worry so much about the flock to the exclusion of your children. And of course, you can never forget about God, for it is He who gives you strength in all your pursuits. We are the outliers. We are the mavericks. We are the renegades. We're the contrarians. And now we know how to do it right. Okay, let's get this week's exquisite insight. Are you ready? Let's begin. There is an interesting curiosity in this whole episode of these tribes who want to settle down on the east bank of the Jordan. We have, of course, two full tribes, Reuben and Gad. And then we have this half-tribe of Menashe. Isn't it interesting that only half of Menashe wanted to join this venture? Why was there only a half a tribe? Was the other half indecisive? What's the secret of having only half of this tribe joining this venture, and why specifically was the tribe of Menashe torn asunder half on either side of the Jordan? So I saw some really interesting ideas, exquisite insights for sure. Four insights to be precise about this question. Number one, there is a big risk here. There's a gamble here. You have a geographic separation between 
you know, ten tribes or nine and a half tribes and the other two and a half. It's almost like Alaska. Do you really feel like Alaska is part of this country? It seems like it's theoretically a state, but not really. It's not part of the continent of the United States. Same thing for Hawaii. And I'm saying that as someone who knows that we're very popular. The Parsha Podcast is really popular in Hawaii and Alaska, but still. Us here in the lower 48, the United States, it seems like it's so far away. It's like a foreign country almost. Why? Because it's not really contiguous with us. There, There is Canada separating us and Alaska and it's so far away. And it's, it's like that almost, like even in Manhattan, you know. If you're the other side of the river, you might as well be on the other side of the world. There is that attitude. We have this river, the Jordan River. Now it's going to be separating Parts of the Jewish people. And therefore, it was necessary to ensure that this nation remains a single entity. We don't want de facto secession. And therefore, there was a tribe that straddled both sides of the Jordan. And that ensured that this nation remained one nation. The tribe of Nasha was the glue binding both sides of the Jordan together. If there is one tribe that necessarily has to always be crossing over, that will ensure the nation remains one. Idea number one. Idea number two, this is a little bit of a tangential point or not quite the same point that we're talking about in idea number one. The Midrash says something really interesting. All the way back in Genesis, we had the episode of when, when Joseph was the viceroy of Egypt and his brothers came to procure provisions and Joseph was playing all kinds of games with them. At one point, the brothers all tore, they rent their garments because Joseph smuggled in the goblet and the satchel of Benjamin. Who was the one who did that? So the Midrash tells us that Joseph's right-hand man was his son, Menashe. And therefore, Menashe caused, of course, he did it for the right reasons. Joseph had his calculations and he had to listen to his father. But Menashe caused the brothers to tear their garments. And therefore, measure for measure, he too will be torn half of his tribe on one side of the Jordan and half on the other side, idea number two. Insight number two. Insight number three, this is courtesy of the Kabbalists. They say something very powerful. Our nation can never flourish without at least some contingency, some representation of Joseph. And not just Joseph, but what Joseph represents. The nation couldn't leave Egypt, for example, without the bones of Joseph. There is power in Joseph that is the engine, so to speak, that's always needed to drive the people forward. And therefore, if there's going to be a group of Jews on one side of the Jordan, they have to have some representation from Joseph, and therefore, Manasseh, as the elder son of Joseph, had to submit a cohort, a contingency to join them to make sure that that group has some 
Josephian representation. The Ramban incidentally says it wasn't really half, it was, it was a portion. It was a group just to make sure that there was some representation of Joseph over there. And finally, point number four begins with an observation. We see that half of Menashe ended up on the other side of the Jordan, not in Israel or in Canaan proper, in Eretz Israel proper. Isn't it interesting? Last week we read about the daughters of Tzlavchad. And Rashi there tells us that they loved the land of Israel. And that's why they were so intent on earning a portion of land in the Holy Land. How is it possible that the tribe of Menashe produced daughters of Tzlavchad who loved the land so much? And then we have this faction that chose to live in the annex, to live in the other part of the land that's not really technically as holy, as special as the land of Israel. Yes, it was annexed to the land, but it's not really the same thing. The tribe of Manasseh, what do they want? Do they want to be in the land of Israel or outside the land of Israel? So the Kabbalists say something interesting. Manasseh was the son of Joseph. Joseph is the father of Manasseh. Well, who was Manasseh's mother? She was Asnas, the daughter of Potiphar. And thus, Manasseh is a hybrid, half dad, half mom. And therefore, say the Kabbalists, the half that stemmed from Joseph had an intense love of the land, and they were committed to joining the rest of the nation on the other side of the Jordan at all costs. And that half is represented by Tzlavchad's daughters and the half of Manasseh that indeed crossed over the Jordan and remained there. But there was a second half. The other half emanated from Asnas and did not have the same love of the land. And they were the ones, they were the half that chose, that opted to remain in the Transjordan. It's twisit, says I. Definitely, it's twisit. I thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this part of the podcast at least 5%, as much as I did in recording it. Hope you have a, an incredible day, a wonderful week. I hope you are still joyous, even though you have to minimize joy starting from Friday through Tishabov. Next week is, we're still joyous but a little bit less, one notch lower than usual. But of course, on Shabbos, we never mourn. And therefore, you should definitely have a wonderful and incredible and joyous Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, remember, we have to always include the Almighty in all of our plans. Please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will meet again next week for the brand new book, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Devarim in good health and in great spirits. And as always, my email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Send me your questions, your comments, and your feedback.